Chapter 6 of the Book of Buried Treasure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Buried Treasure by Ralph Delahaye Payne. Chapter 6 The Bold Sea Rogue, John Quelch. The Isles of Shoals, lying within sight of Portsmouth Harbor on the New Hampshire coast, are rich in buried treasure legends, and rocky Appledores distinguished by the ghost of a pirate, a pale and dreadful specter, whose neck bears the livid mark of the hangman's noose. This is a ghost in whose case familiarity has bred contempt among the matter-of-fact islanders, for they call him Old Bab and employ him to frighten naughty children. Drakes nooks and corners of the new england coast narrates in the proper melodramatic manner the best of these traditions among others to whom it is said these islands were known was the celebrated captain teach or blackbeard as he was often called he is supposed to have buried immense treasure here some of which has been dug up and appropriated by the islanders on one of his cruises while lying off the scottish coast waiting for a rich trader he was boarded by a stranger who came off in a small boat from the shore the visitor demanded to be led before the pirate chief in whose cabin he remained closeted for some time at length blackbeard appeared on deck with the stranger whom he introduced as a comrade the vessel they were expecting soon came in sight and after a bloody conflict became the prize of blackbeard the newcomer had shown such bravery that he was given command of the captured merchantman. Stranger soon proved himself a pirate leader of great skill and bravery, and went cruising off to the southward and the coast of the Spanish main. At last, after his appetite for wealth had been sated, he sailed back to his native land of Scotland, made a landing, and returned on board with the insensible body of a beautiful young woman in his arms. The pirate ship then made sail, across the Atlantic, and anchored in the roadstead of the Isles of Shoals. Here the crew passed the time in secreting their riches and in carousing. The commander's portion was buried on an island apart from the rest. He roomed over the isles with his beautiful companion, forgetful, it would seem, of his fearful trade, until one day a sail was seen standing in for the islands. All was now activity on board the pirate. But before getting under way, the outlaw carried the maiden to the island where he had buried his treasure, and made her take a fearful oath to guard the spot from mortals until his return, or not till doomsday. The strange sail proved to be a warlike vessel in search of the freebooter. A long and desperate battle ensued in which the cruiser at last silenced her adversary's guns. The vessels were grappled for a last struggle when a terrible explosion strewed the sea with the fragments of both. Stung to madness by defeat, knowing that if taken alive, a gibbet awaited him. The rover had fired the magazine, involving friend and foe in a common fate. A few mangled wretches succeeded in reaching the islands, only to perish miserably one by one from hunger and cold. The pirate's mistress remained true to her oath to the last, or until she had succumbed to wanton exposure. By report, she has been seen more than once on White Island, a tall, shapely figure, wrapped in a long sea cloak her head and neck uncovered, except by a profusion of golden hair. Her face is described as exquisitely rounded, but pale and still as marble. She takes her stand on the verge of a low, projecting point, gazing fixedly out upon the ocean in an attitude of intense expectation. A forager race of fishermen avouched that her ghost was doomed to haunt those rocks until the last trump shall sound, and that ancient graves to be found on the islands were tenanted by Blackbeard's men. 
It is more probable that whatever treasure may be hidden among the Isles of Shoals was hidden there by the shipmates of a great scamp of a pirate named John Quelch, who fills an interesting page in the early history of the Massachusetts colony. In proof of this assertion is the entry in one of the old records of Salem, written in the year 1704. Major Stephen Sewell, Captain John Turner, and forty volunteers embark in a shallop in Fort Pinnacle after sunset to go in search of some pirates who sailed from Gloucester in the morning. Major Sewell brought into Salem a galley, Captain Thomas Lorimer, on board of which he had captured some pirates and some of their gold at the Isle of Shoals. Major Sewell carries the pirates to Boston under a strong guard. Captain Quelch and five of his crew are hung. About thirteen of the ship's company remain under sentence of death, and several more are cleared. By no means all of the blood-stained gold of Quelch was recovered by this expedition, which went to the Isles of Shoals, and it is more likely to be hidden there to this day than anywhere else. Quelch was a bold figure of a pirate worthy to be named in the company of the most dashing of his profession in the era of Kidd, Bradish, Bellamy, and Lowe. His story is worth the telling because it is, in a way, a sequel of the tragedy of Captain Kidd. In 1703, the brigantine Charles, of about 80 tons, owned by leading citizens and merchants of Boston, was fitted out as a privateer to go cruising against the French off the coast of Arcadia and Newfoundland. On July 13th of that year, her commander, Captain David Plowman, received his commission from Governor Dudley of the province to sail in pursuit of the Queen's enemies and pirates with other customary instructions. There was some delay in shipping a crew, and on the 1st of August, the Charles was riding off Marblehead when Captain Plowman was taken ill. He sent a letter to his owners, stating that he was unable to take the vessel to sea, and suggesting that they come on board next day and take some speedy care in saving what we can. The owners went to Marblehead, but the captain was too ill to confer with them. He was able, however, to write again, this time urging them to have the vessel carried to Boston and the arms and stores landed in order to prevent embezzlement, and, advising against sending the Charles on her cruise under a new commander, added the warning that it will not do with these people meaning the crew then on board. Before the owners could take any measures to safeguard their property, the brigantine had made sail and was standing out to sea, stolen by her crew. The helpless captain was locked in his cabin, and the new commander on the quarter-deck was John Quelch, who had planned and led the mutiny. Instead of turning to the northward, the bow of the Charles was pointed for the South Atlantic and the track of the Spanish trade, where there was rich pirating. Somewhere in the Gulf Stream, Poor Captain Plowman was dragged on deck and tossed overboard by order of Quelch. A flag was then hoisted, called Old Roger, described as having in the middle of it an anatomy, skeleton, with an hourglass in one hand and a dart in the heart, with three drops of blood proceeding from it in the other. When the coast of Brazil was reached, Quelch and his men drove a thriving trade. Between November 15, 1703 and February 17, 1704, they boarded and took nine vessels of which five were brigantines, and one large ship carrying twelve guns. All these craft flew the Portuguese flag, and Portugal was an ally of England by virtue of a treaty which had been signed at Lisbon on May 16, 1703. What became of the crews of these hapless vessels was not revealed, but the plunder included salt, sugar, rum, beer, rice, flour, cloth, silk, one hundred weight of gold dust, gold and silver coin to the value of a thousand pounds, to Negro boys, Greek guns, small arms, ammunition, sails, and cordage. One of the largest of the brigantines was kept to serve as a tender. Two weeks after the Charles had taken French leave from Marblehead, 
Her owners, surmising that she had been headed toward the West Indies, persuaded Governor Dudley to take action, and letters were sent to officials in various islands instructing them to be on the lookout for the runaway privateer and to seize her crew as pirates. Welch was a wily rogue, however, and kept clear of all pursuit. Nor was anything more heard of the Charles until, with extraordinary audacity, he came sailing back to New England in the following May and dropped anchor off Marblehead. His men quickly scattered along shore and gave out the story which he had cooked up for them, that Captain Plowman had died of his illness while at sea, that Quelch had been obliged to take command, and that they had recovered a great deal of treasure from the wreck of a Spanish galleon. The yarn was fishy, the men talked too much in their cups, and the owners of the Charles were not satisfied with Quelch's glib explanation. They laid information against him in writing, and the vessel was searched, the plunder indicating that the lawless crew had been lifting the goods of subjects of the King of Portugal. The first mention of the affair in the Boston Newsletter was in the issue for the week of May 15, 1704. Arrived at Marblehead, Captain Quelch and the brigantine that Captain Plowman went out in, it is said to come from New Spain, and have made a good voyage. Quelch was a good deal more of a man than Captain Kidd, who skulked homeward, hiding his treasure, parlaying with Governor Bellamont at long range, afraid to come to close quarters. A strutting, swaggering villain was John Quelch, daring to beard the lion in his den, trusting to his ability to deceive with the authorities. To have run away with a privateer, thrown the captain overboard, filled the hole with loot, and then sailed back to Marblehead was no ordinary achievement. However, this truly artistic piracy was so coldly welcomed that a week after his arrival had been chronicled, he was in jail, and the following proclamation issued. By the Honorable Thomas Povey, Esquire, Lieutenant Governor and Commander-in-Chief, for the time being, of Her Majesty's Province of the Massachusetts Bay in New England, a proclamation. Whereas, John Quelch, late commander of the Brigantine Charles and his company, to her belonging, viz. John Lambert, John Miller, John Clifford, John Dorothy, James Perrot, Charles James, William Whiting, John Pittman, John Templeton, Benjamin Perkins, William Wiles, Richard Lawrence, Erasmus Peterson, John King, Charles King, Isaac Johnson, Nicholas Lawson, Daniel Cheval, John Way, Thomas Farrington, Matthew Primer, Anthony Holding, William Rayner, John Quittance, John Harwood, William Jones, Dennis Carter, Nicholas Richardson, James Austin, James Pattinson, Joseph Hutnut, George Pierce, George Norton, Gabriel Davis, John Breck, John Carter, Paul Gins, Nicholas Dunbar, Richard Thurbar, Daniel Chilly, and others, have lately imported a considerable quantity of gold dust, and some barring coin gold, which they are violently suspected to have gotten and obtained by felony and piracy from some of Her Majesty's friends and allies, and have imported and shared the same among themselves, without any adjudication or condemnation thereof to be lawful prizes, the said commander and some others being apprehended and in custody, the rest are absconded and fled from justice. I have therefore thought fit by and with the advice of Her Majesty's Council strictly to command and require all officers, civil and military, and others Her Majesty's loving subjects, to apprehend and seize the said persons, or any of them whom they may know or find, and them secure in their treasure, and bring them before one of the council or next justice of the peace, in order to their being safely conveyed to Boston, to be examined and brought to answer what shall be objected against them on Her Majesty's behalf, 
and all Her Majesty's subjects and others are hereby strictly forbidden to entertain, harbor, or conceal any of the said persons, or their treasure, or to convey away, or in any manner further the escape of any of them, on pain of being proceeded against with utmost severity of law, as accessories and partakers with them in their crime. Given at the Council Chamber in Boston, the twenty-fourth day of May in the third year of the reign of our Sovereign Lady Anne, by the grace of God of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland, Queen, Defender of the Faith, etc., Anoke Dame, 1704, T. Povey, by order of the Lieutenant Governor and Council, Isaac Addington, Secretary, God Save the Queen. The editor of the Boston Newsletter, commenting on the foregoing fulmination, saw fit to qualify as previous mention of Quelch's voyage, and announced under date of May 27th. Our last gave an account of Captain Quelch's being said to arrive from North Spain, having made a good voyage, but by the foregoing proclamation tis uncertain whence they came, and too palpably evident that they have committed piracies, either upon Her Majesty's subjects or allies. William Whiting lies sick, like to die, not yet examined. There are two more of them sick at Marblehead, and another in Salem, Gale, and James Austin, imprisoned at Iskataqua. Soon as Governor Dudley returned to Boston, a few days later, he issued a proclamation to reinforce that of the Lieutenant Governor, and one paragraph indicated that the case of John Quelch was moving swiftly toward the gallows. And it being now made evident by the confession of some of the said persons apprehended and examined, that the golden treasure by them imported was robbed, and taken from the subject of the crown of portugal on which they have also acted divers villainous murders i have thought fit etc it was believed that several of the crew had scampered off with a large amount of the treasure for governor dudley laid great stress on overhauling sundry of them mentioned by name with their treasure concealed in his speech at the opening of the general court on june first he stated the last week has discovered a very notorious piracy committed upon Her Majesty's allies, the Portugal, on the coast of Brazil, by Quelch and Company, in the Charles Galley, for the discovery of which all possible methods have been used, and the severest process against those vile men shall be speedily taken, that the province be not thereby disparaged, as they have been heretofore. And I hope every good man will do his duty, according to the several proclamations, to discover the pirates and their treasure, agreeable to the acts of parliament in that case made and provided dudley was as energetic in pursuit of the runaway pirates as bellamont had been and the newsletter recorded his activities in this wise warrants are issued forth to seize and apprehend captain larimore in the larimore galley who is said to have sailed from cape ann with nine or eleven pirates of captain quelch's company there is two more of the pirates seized this week and in custody these benjamin perkins and john templeton Rhode Island, June 9th, the Honorable Samuel Cranston, Esquire, Governor of Her Majesty's Colony of Rhode Island, etc., having received a proclamation, emitted by His Excellency Joseph Dudley, Esquire, General and Governor-in-Chief, in and over Her Majesty's Province of the Massachusetts Bay, etc., for seizing and apprehending the late company of pirates belonging to the Brigantine Charles, of whom John Quelch was commander, by and with the advice of the Deputy Governor and Council present, issued forth his further proclamation to seize and apprehend said pirates or any of their treasure and to bring them before one of the Council or next Justice of the Peace in order to be conveyed to the town of Newport to be examined and proceeded with according to law. Commanding the Sheriff to publish this and His Excellency's proclamation in the town of Newport and in other towns of the colony, strictly forbidding all Her Majesty's subjects and others to conceal any of them or their treasure or convey and further their escape on pain of being proceeded against 
with utmost severity of law. Marblehead, June 9th. The Honorable Samuel Sewell, Nathaniel Blyfield, and Paul Dudley, Esquires, came to this place yesterday in obedience to His Excellency the Governor, his order for the more effectual discovering and seizing the pirates lately belonging to the brigantine Charles, John Quelch, commander, with their treasure. They made Salem in their way, where Samuel Wayfield to Walter Bailey informed them of a rumor that two of Quelch's company were lurking at Cape Ann, waiting for a passage off the coast. Commissioners made out a warrant to Wakefield to search for them, and dispatched him away on Wednesday night. And having gained intelligence this morning that a certain number of them, well armed, were at Cape Ann, designing to go off in the Laramore Galley, then at anchor in the harbor, they immediately sent men from several adjacent towns by land and water to prevent their escape, and went thither themselves to give necessary orders upon the place. Gloucester, upon Cape Ann, June 9th, the commissioners for seizing the pirates and their treasure arrived here this day were advised that the Lurmore Galley sailed in the morning eastward, and that a boat was seen to go off from the head of the Cape, near Snake Island, full of men, supposed to be the pirates. Commissioners, seeing the government mocked by Captain Lurmore and his officers, resolved to send after them. Major Stephen Sewell, who attended with a fishing shallop and the Fort Pinnacle, offered to go in pursuit of them. Captain John Turner, Mr. Robert Briscoe, Captain Knight, and several other good men voluntarily accompanied him, to the number of 42 men who rode out of the harbor after sunset, being little wind. Salem, June 11th. This afternoon, Major Sewell brought into this port Laramore Galley and seven pirates, viz. Erasmus Peterson, Charles James, John Carter, John Pittman, Francis King, Charles King, John King, whom he, with his company, surprised and seized at the Isles of Shoals the Tenth. Instant, viz. four of them on board, Laramore Galley, and three of them on shore on Star Island, being assisted by John Hanks and Thomas Phipps, Esquires, two of Her Majesty's Justices of New Hampshire, who were happily there, together with the Justices and the Captain of a place. He also seized forty-five ounces and seven penny weight of gold of the said pirates, Captain Thomas Larimore, Joseph Wells, Lieutenant, and Daniel Warmall, Master, and the said pirates are secured in our jail. Gloucester, June 12th. Yesterday, Master Sewell passed by this place with the Larimore Galley and Shallop Trial, standing for Salem and having little wind, set our men ashore on the eastern point, giving them notice that William Jones and Peter Roach, two of the pirates, had mistook their way and were still left at the Cape, with strict charge the shirts for them, which our townspeople performed very industriously. Being strangers and destitute of all succors, they surrendered themselves this afternoon and were sent to Salem Prison. Boston, June 17th. On the thirteenth instant, Major Sewell attended with the strong guard brought to the town the above-mentioned pirates and gold he had seized, and gave His Excellency a full account of his procedure in seizing them. The prisoners were committed to jail in order to a trial, and the gold delivered to the treasurer and committee appointed to receive the same. The service of Major Sewell and company was very well accepted and rewarded by the governor. His Excellency was pleased on the 13th current to open the High Court of Admiralty for trying Captain John Quelch, late commander of the Brigantine Charles, Company for Piracy, who were brought to the bar, and the articles exhibited against them read. They all pleaded not guilty, excepting three, these Matthew Primer, John Clifford, and James Parrow, who were reserved for evidences, and are in Her Majesty's mercy. The prisoners moved for counsel, and His Excellency assigned them Mr. James Mines's. The court was adjourned to the 16th, when met again Captain Quelch, preferred a petition to His Excellency, an honorable court, craving longer time, which was granted till Monday morning at nine of the clock, when said court is to sit again in order to their trial.
Newspaper reporting was primitive in the year of our Lord 1704, and we are denied further information of the merry chase after the fleeing pirates and their treasure. One would like to know more of that adventure at the Isles of Shoals, and what the fugitives were doing on shore at Star Island. The trial of Quelch and his companions was recorded with much more detail, because it had certain important and memorable aspects. It will be recalled that Kidd and his men were sent to England for trial by Bellamont for the reason that the colonial laws made no provision for executing the death sentence in the case of a convicted pirate. The difficulties and delays and the large expenses incident to the Kidd proceedings were among the considerations which moved Parliament by an act passed in the reign of William III to confer upon the Crown authority to issue commissions for the trial of pirates by courts of admiralty out of the realm. Such a commission was finally sent to Lord Bellamont for the trial and pirates in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. Another document of the same kind, granting him this power for New York, arrived there after his death. These rights were conferred by Queen Anne, and in her instructions to Governor Dudley, she expressed her will and pleasure that in all matters relating to the prosecution of pirates, he governed himself according to the act and commission aforesaid. The trial of Quelch was the first to be held by virtue of these authorizations and therefore the first capital proceedings against pirates in the New England colonies. A special court was convened, and an opposing tribunal it was, comprising the governors and lieutenant governors of the provinces of Massachusetts Bay and New Hampshire, the judge of vice-admiralty in each, the chief justices of the Superior Court of Judicature, the secretary of the province, member of the Council of Massachusetts Bay, and the collector of customs for New England. The sessions were held in the Star Tavern on the present Hanover Street of Boston, and Quelch was tried first, being charged with nine several articles of piracy and murder. He was very expeditiously found guilty and sentenced to death, after which nineteen of his company, in two batches, were dealt the same verdict. From his wholesale punishment, only two were accepted. William Whiting, the witnesses providing no matter of fact upon him, said Whiting being sick all the voyage and not active, and John Templeton, a servant about fourteen years of age and not charged with any action. These were acquitted. There are preserved only two copies of a broadside published in Boston in July of 1704, which quaintly portrays the strenuous efforts made to save the souls of the condemned pirates, who must have been men of uncommonly stout endurance to stand up under the sermons with which they were bombarded. This little pamphlet may serve as a warning to venturesome boys of the 20th century who yearn to go a-pirating and to bury treasure. An account of the behavior and last dying speeches of the six pirates that were executed on Charles River, Boston side, on Friday, June 30, 1704, viz. Captain John Quelch, John Lambert, Christopher Scudamore, John Miller, Erasmus Peterson, and Peter Roach. The ministers of the town had used more than ordinary endeavors to instruct the prisoners and bring them to repentance. There were sermons preached in their hearing every day, and prayers daily made with them, and they were catechized, and they had many occasional exhortations, and nothing was left that could be done for their good. On Friday the 30th of June, 1704, pursuant to the orders in the dead warrant, the aforesaid pirates were guarded from the prison in Boston by forty musketeers, constables of the town, provost-marshal and his officers, etc., with two ministers, took great pains to prepare them for the last article of their lives. Being allowed to walk on foot through the town, the Scarlet's Wharf, where the silver ore being carried before them, they went by water to the place of execution, being crowded and thronged on all sides by multitudes of spectators. The ministers then spoke to the malefactors to this effect. 
We have told you often, yea, we have told you weeping, that you have by sin undone yourselves, that you were born sinners, that you have lived sinners, that your sins have been many and mighty, and that the sins for which you are now to die are of no common aggravation. We have told you that there is a Savior for sinners, and we have shown you how to commit yourselves into his saving and healing hands. We have told you that if he save you, he will give you his hearty repentance for all your sins, and we have shown you how to express that repentance. We have told you what marks of life must be desired for your souls, that you may safely appear before the judgment seat of God. Oh, that the means used for your good may by the grace of God be made effectual. We can do no more, but leave you in his merciful hands. When they were gone upon the stage, and silence was commanded, one of the ministers prayed as followeth. O oh, thou most great and glorious Lord, thou art a righteous and terrible God. It is a righteous and a holy law that thou hast given unto all, but what would soon have done the worst things in the world. O oh, the high grace, oh, the riches of that grace which has made all the difference. But now we cry us to break that good law, and sin against thy infinite majesty can be no little evil. Thy word is always true and very particular, that word of thine which has told us and warned us, evil pursueth sinners. We have seen it, we have seen it, we have before our eyes a dreadful demonstration of it. Oh, sanctify unto us a sight that has in it so much of the terror of the Lord. Here is a number of men that have been very great sinners, and that are to die before their time for their being wicked overmuch. But now we cry mightily to heaven. We lift up our cries to the God of all grace for the perishing souls, which are just now going to expire under the stroke of justice before our eyes. We mourn, we mourn, that upon some of them at least we do unto this minute see no better symptoms. But, oh, is there not yet a room for sovereign grace to be displayed in their conversion and salvation? They perish if they do not now sincerely turn from sin to God and give themselves up to the Lord Jesus Christ. They righteously and horribly perish, and yet without influences from above, they can do none of those things which must be done if they do not perish. Oh, let us beg it of our God that he would not be so provoked at their multiplied and prodigious impieties, and at their obstinate hardness under means of good formerly afforded them, as to withhold those influences from them. We cry to thee, O God of all grace, that thou wouldst not suffer them to continue in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity, and in the possession of the devil. Oh, knock off the chains of death which are upon their souls. Oh, snatch the prey out of the hands of the terrible. Discover to them the only savior of their souls. Oh, dispose them. Oh, assist them to give the consent of their souls unto his wonderful proposals. Let them die renouncing all dependence on any righteousness of their own. Alas, what can they have of their own to depend on? 
as a token and effect of their having accepted the righteousness of god let them heartily repent of all their sins against thee and abhor and cast up every morsel of their iniquity oh let them not go out of the world raging and raving against the justice of god and man and whatever part of the satanic image is yet remaining on their souls oh efface it let them now die in such a state and such a frame as may render them fit to appear before god the judge of all what shall plead for them great god grant that all the spectators may get good by the horrible spectacle that is now before them let all the people hear and fear and let no more any such wickedness be done as has produced this woeful spectacle and let all the people beware how they go on in the ways of sin and in the paths of the destroyer after so solemn warnings oh but shall our seafaring tribe on this occasion be in a singular manner affected with the warnings of god lord may those our dear brethren be saved from the temptations which do so threaten them oh let them not abandon themselves to profanity to swearing to cursing to drinking to lewdness to a cursed forgetfulness of their maker and of the end for which he made them oh let them not be abandoned of god unto their courses that will hasten them to a damnation that slumbers not oh let the men hear the lord exceedingly we pray thee let the condition of the six or seven men whom they now see dying for their wickedness upon the sea be sanctified unto them they then severally spoke viz one captain john quelch the last words he spoke to one of the ministers at his going up the stage were i am not afraid of death i am not afraid of the gallows but i am afraid of what follows i am afraid of a great god and a judgment to come but he afterwards seemed to brave it out too much against that fear also when on the stage he first pulled off his hat and bowed to the spectators and not concerned nor behaving himself so much like a dying man as some would have done the ministers had in the way to his execution much desired him to glorify god at his death by bearing a due testimony against the sins that had ruined him and for the ways of religion which he had much neglected yet now being called upon to speak what he had to say it was but this much what i have to say is this i desire to be informed for what i am here i am condemned only upon circumstances i forgive all the world so the lord be merciful to my soul the member was warning the spectators beware of bad company quelch joining they should also take care how they brought money into new england to be hanged for it two john lambert he appeared much hardened and pleaded much on his innocency he desired all men to beware of bad company he seemed in great agony near his execution called much and frequently on christ for pardon of sin that god almighty would save his innocent soul he desired to forgive all the world his last words were lord forgive my soul oh receive me into eternity blessed name of christ receive my soul three christopher scudmore he appeared very penitent since his condemnation was very diligent to improve his time going to and at the place of execution four john miller he seemed much concerned and complained of a great burden of sins to answer for expressing often lord what shall i do to be saved five erasmus peterson he cried of injustice done him and said it is very hard for so many lives to be taken away for a little gold 
He often said his peace was made with God, and his soul would be with God. He had extreme hard to forgive those he said had wronged him. He told the executioner he was a strong man, and prayed to be put out of his misery as soon as possible. 6. Peter Roach He seemed a little concerned, and said but little or nothing at all. Francis King was also brought to the place of execution, but reprieved. Printed for and sold by Nicholas Boone at his shop near the old meeting house in Boston, 1704. Advertisement there is now in the press and will speedily be published the arraignment, trial, and condemnation of Captain John Quilt and others of his company, etc., for sundry piracies, robberies, and murder committed upon the subjects of the King of Portugal, Her Majesty's ally on the coast of Brazil, etc., who upon full evidence were found guilty at the courthouse in Boston on 13th June, 1704, with the arguments of the Queen's Council and Council for the Prisoners upon the act for the more effectual suppression of piracy, within the count of the ages of the several prisoners and the places where they were born. The newsletter was less inclined to vouch for the pious inclinations of these poor wretches, and gravely stated that, notwithstanding all the great labor and pains taken by the reverend ministers of the town of Boston, ever since they were first seized and brought to town, both before and since their trial and condemnation, to instruct, admonish, preach, and pray for them, yet, as they had led a wicked and vicious life, so to appearance they died very obdurately and impenitently hardened in their sins. Be that as it may, the figure of bold John Quelch on the gallows, bowing to the spectators, hat in hand, is that of no whimpering coward, and one admires him for that grimly sardonic touch of humor as he warned the silent, curious multitude, take care, how they brought money into New England, to be hanged for it. Among these devout and somber pilgrims and Puritans who listened to that singularly moving prayer, tremendous in its sincerity, were more than the few who were bringing money into New England by means of trade in rum and negroes, were very quietly buying and selling the merchandise fetched home by pirates who were lucky enough to keep clear of the law. The Massachusetts colonists dearly loved to make public parade of a rogue caught in the act, and to see six pirates hanged at once was a rare holiday indeed. These only of the number convicted and condemned were hanged. All the others were pardoned a year later by Queen Anne at the recommendation of Governor Dudley, with the exhortation that as they had now new lives given them, they should be new men and be very faithful and diligent in the service of Her Majesty, who might as easily and justly have ordered their execution this day as sent their pardon. As one way of turning pirates to some useful account, these forgiven rogues were promptly drafted into the Royal Navy as able seamen, and doubtless made excellent food for powder. Although a large part of that hundredweight of gold was successfully concealed by Quelch and his comrades, either buried at the Isles of Shoals or otherwise spirited away, Enough of it was recovered to afford a division of the spoils among various officials in a manner so suggestive of petty graft as to warrant the conclusion that piracy was not entirely a maritime trade in Puritan Boston. Every man jack of them who had anything whatever to do with catching or keeping or hanging Quelch and his fellows poked his finger into the bag of gold. It seemed like very belated muckraking to fish up the document that tells in detail what became of so much of the Quelch treasure as fell into the greedy hands of the authorities. But here are the telltale figures. To Stephen North, who kept the Star Tavern in which the trial was held, for the entertainment of the commissioners during the sitting of the Court of Admiralty, and four witnesses, twenty-eight pounds, eleven shillings, and sixpence. To Lieutenant Governor Usher, expenses in securing and returning of James Austin's gold from the province of New Hampshire, three pounds, ten shillings. To Richard Jesse, Sheriff of New Hampshire and his officers, Underkeeper, for charge of keeping the said Austin, expenses in his sickness, and charge of conveying him into this province, 
Nine pounds, five shillings. Mr. James Menzies, of counsel for the prisoners, on their trial, as signed by the commissioners, twenty pounds. Henry Franklin, Marshal of the Admiralty for the Gibbet, Guards, and Execution, twenty-nine pounds, nineteen shillings. Later, forty shillings added to Thomas Barnard for erecting the gibbet. To Samuel Wakefield, Deputy Marshal of the Admiralty, for charges in apprehending several of the said pirates, four pounds, five shillings, and sixpence. To Mr. Apthorpe and Mr. Jesse, two of the constables of Boston, for their service about apprehending the said pirates, forty shillings. To the constables of the several towns betwixt Bristol and Boston for apprehending and conveying Christopher Cuttamore, two pounds, eighteen shillings. Captain Edward Brattle, charges on a Negro boy imported by the said pirates, twenty-five shillings. To Andrew Belcher, Esquire, charges for clothing of the witness, sent to England with Laramore and Wells, charged as accessories, seven pounds, eighteen shillings. To Paul Dudley, Esquire, the Queen's advocate for the prosecution of the said pirates, preparing the said trial for the press, supervising of the same, and for his service relating Captain Laramore, in the whole, thirty-six pounds. Thomas Newton, Esquire, counsel for the Queen in the said trial, ten pounds. Mr. John Valentine, register for his service on the trial and for transcribing them to be transmitted to Her Majesty's High Court of Admiralty in England, thirteen pounds. Mr. Sheriff Dyer, for his service relating to the said prisoners, five pounds. To William Clark of Boston, for casks, shifting and landing the sugar and other things piratically and feloniously obtained by Captain Quelch and Company, and for storage of them, thirteen pounds. Daniel Willard, keeper of the prison in Boston, toward the charge of feeding and keeping of the said pirates, thirty pounds. To Andrew Belcher, the Commissary General, an additional sum of five pounds, nine shillings, and sixpence for necessary clothing supplied to some of the pirates in prison. Major James Sewell, for his pursuit and apprehension of seven of the pirates, for the gratification of himself, Captain Turner, and other officers, one hundred and thirty-two pounds, five shillings. The commissioners, Sewell, Byfeld, and Paul Dudley, received for their expenses and services, twenty-five pounds, seven shillings, and ten pence. Finally, they were given to the captains of the several companies of militia in the town for Boston, for their charges and expenses on guards and watches on the pirates during their imprisonment, twenty-seven pounds, sixteen shillings, and three pence. Captain Tuthill, for his assistance to secure and bring about the vessel and goods from Marblehead, five pounds, to Mr. Jeremiah Allen, the treasurer's bookkeeper, for his care and service about the said gold and goods, five pounds. Constable Apthorpe and Jesse, for their services, a further allowance of three pounds. The amount of the royal bounty given the governor as a share of the pirate's booty is not recorded, if the belief of those of their contemporaries who best know the deadlies may be relied on. These emoluments officially awarded them were by no means the extent of the profits from their dealings with the pirates and their treasure. When Cotton Mather quarreled with Governor Dudley a few years later, he did not hesitate to intimate this charge pretty broadly in the following passages in his memorial on the Dudley administration. There have been odd collusions with the pirates of Quelch's company, of which one instance is that there was extorted the sum of about thirty pounds from some of the crew for liberty to walk at certain times in the prison yard. And this liberty having been allowed for two or three days unto them, they were again confined to their former wretched circumstances. End of chapter 6